Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. On this week's show, I'm speaking with Maria Rua Agueta, Senior Research Director of Media and Entertainment at Omdia Research on streaming trends and Spanish content. Broadcasting and cable and multi-channel news' is contributing editor Paige Albiniak on US TV syndication, and Sophie Alexander, Washington DC producer for ITV News, takes us behind the scenes of the storming of the US Capitol last week. Plus, well-being expert Tracy Forsyth takes us through dealing with anxiety with Blue Monday just around the corner. It's all coming up on this week's telecast. And just a reminder to sign up for our new free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, jobs news, execs available for hire, Tracy's wellbeing tip of the week, and exclusive insight and opinion. And it's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. So the first item on this week's show is an extraordinary story, I think, and I'm delighted to be joined by Sophie Alexander, the Washington, D.C. producer for ITV News. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Hi, I'm very well, very tired, but very well. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Well, thank you for joining us. I realise you're incredibly busy in this uh, most extraordinary of times. But what I'd love to be able to talk to you about is your experience last week at the Capitol building as the only TV crew which was inside the Senate, inside the, the Capitol building which is uh, amazing. And if anybody hasn't seen the footage, then we'll uh, we'll include a link in the description and share it on social media as well. Can you talk us through the day? Give us an, a, an idea of how the day progressed and how you as a crew went through the day reporting on these uh, these demonstrations. We'd obviously had a team, a bureau chat the day before because we knew that the president was going to be speaking at a large rally. We thought it was probably his last public speech before Biden's inauguration. And we knew attendance was going to be higher than his other marches and rallies of the last few weeks. So we'd agreed the day before that Robert Moore, our correspondent, Mark Davey, our cameraman and myself would meet in the bureau at 9.30 and then head out to see the crowds sort of forming, do a few interviews. Robert would do a piece to camera and then he would nip back to the bureau to edit with our editor, Adam Blair, under the eye of Alex Chandler, our news editor. So that was sort of our our plan for the day. We did anticipate that there may be violence and anger. However, we thought that was going to be in the evening. Did you get the idea that something was brewing? Because presumably a lot of these protesters had been arriving in Washington over the previous few days. Exactly that. We we knew it was going to be bigger than the previous two marches, but it was still fairly difficult to get a sense of quite how big it was going to be. And in the end, it didn't prove to be the numbers that were quite the issue. It was just the, the violence, the anger, the frustration, and the fury of which the protesters arrived in D.C., you know, armed with, not not to mention their weapons, they were armed with their anger as well. 
there were reports I heard of people with long guns, actually, within the Senate building. So I never witnessed any anyone carrying a firearm. It is worth mentioning that while across America there are different laws about carrying firearms, whether you can you can conceal them or not, but in D.C. you are not allowed to carry a firearm. So if they were carrying, they would have been concealed. So as I said, we went to, to um, the sort of march and the rally. Thousands of Trump supporters were amassing near the Washington Memorial, waiting for him to come on stage at 11. So we, you know, got a few shots of the crowd. Robert did some interviews. He did a piece to camera. And then he had to knit back to the Bureau to edit, as I said. So Mark and I stuck around waiting for Trump to come on stage, which he did about an hour late to, you know, thunderous applause and cheers not unlike we've seen before. But as we as we were sort of watching people watch him, so to speak, it did become apparent a couple of times that there were quite odd sort of weapons people were carrying, but it, it also also wasn't quite out of place because we're used to seeing Trump supporters. A lot of them are very ardent and right wing and it's not unusual to see them carrying wooden sticks or that such a thing you know it's not unusual we did spot one man who actually walked right past us carrying a sort of really heavy wooden staff with a big spear on the top which definitely made made us sort of think twice about what was happening today but the, the president during his speech said you know let's march I want you to march to the capital so which we we kind of anticipated was going to happen as well so we as soon as he finished we started walking with the protesters towards the capital but there were thousands of people there you know it takes a while for a crowd to get going so sort of slowly we walked and essentially we were just waiting for that shot that mark the cameraman could get of the capital with a sort of crowd walking towards it so we were sort of really taking our time just trying to get this this shot of the crowd of thousands and then it was, as we got a little closer, Mark sort of kneeled down to get a shot of the crowds. And I heard these two loud booms. And I just thought, right, well, that's unusual. Uh, perhaps the crowd are setting off fireworks. It didn't sound like a gunshot, but it was very loud and, yeah, a real boom. So, you know, I flagged this to Mark after he'd got his shot and he said, no, it's not fireworks. I then looked at my phone and I had a text saying there's a, f- a fight has broken out on the steps of the Capitol. So Mark and I just sort of looked at each other and started not necessarily running, but walking very quickly towards the steps of the Capitol. The closer we got, it just became apparent that this was total chaos, unlike anything I've ever seen before at the Capitol and certainly not like anything anyone had ever seen at the Capitol before. You know, the last time the Capitol was overrun, I think it was 1816. The closer we get, it's clear that the parameters that the police have put out to surround the Senate, the fencing, have just been pushed to one side and trampled on. So we're getting closer and closer. We walk over fences, we climb up a couple of walls as the crowd was doing to just follow this mob as close to the front as we can get the closer we get we see that protesters rioters are actually on the inauguration stage that joe biden 
is will be inaugurated on in less than two weeks time that that was absolutely unheard of that has been protected since it was erected a couple of weeks ago the closer we got we can hear more booms and it becomes apparent that they these are tear gas canisters and the the air just changed not with the tear gas but the atmosphere there was a, a frenzied sort of fury among the people we were surrounding they just wanted to get as close to the front as they could get and it was then I sort of started to think as a producer okay we need to really be careful here I knew that Robert was on his way because um, he'd heard the fight had broken out but I also knew that Mark and I needed to get these shots and get as close to the front as possible so we just pushed our way through Mark both eyes on the camera so I effectively, as a producer, am his eyes. So my main priority was making sure, one, he didn't fall over, two, didn't get hit by anyone or anyone throwing anything, and three, that we got the shots. But really it was his safety and my safety first. You're on the steps up to the Capitol. Yes, that's correct. It was then it became apparent that the police were just woefully outnumbered and underprepared. They really stood no chance, no chance whatsoever. So this was while we were sort of in the middle of both inauguration stages, sort of head dead on with the capital right in front of us. Then we looked to our left and there appeared to be a fresh swarm of people pushing left and actually pushing into the inauguration stage and under the scaffolding. We just followed them. There was no conversation between Mark and I. It just became apparent that there was some sort of entry here and we followed them. And Mark had the shoulder-held camera at this point? No, thankfully not. Mark shoots on a DLSR-type camera, so he was holding it with both hands. I think had he had one of the large, more typical TV cameras on his shoulder, it would have been, one, a lot more difficult, and two, I think it would have made us a lot more of a target. At this point, did you feel threatened? I mean, was were any of the crowd aggressive towards you or at that point do you think that it wasn't clear that you were a news crew I think it's exactly that at this stage with no correspondent yet with us we were ignored the the fury and the anger and the motive was to get inside the capital we were just part of it and we were ignored thankfully so then we proceeded to actually get under the scaffolding with the mob. At this stage, police are firing tear gas in very close proximity to us, which I've never experienced before and I'd never want to experience again. It's pretty nasty stuff. We stay under the scaffolding. I'm not entirely sure of the timeline, but I, I don't think it was quite as long as it felt, to be honest with you. At this stage, somehow Robert manages to get through to me on the phone, which sounds like a minor detail, but communication with the third member of your team that's trying to join you in the middle of a riot with hundreds and thousands of people around you also on their phones is very difficult. So the fact that we actually managed to communicate, I could tell him exactly where we were and he managed to find us was really quite something. Mark is still just shooting, getting picture at this time, just trying to gather as much. I'm trying to make sure one, we're not, you know, as I said before, in the direct line of fire in anyone's path and, Also, a worry of mine was that we were going to get crushed because there was a stampede towards the scaffolding. And the next thing I knew, we were just penned in and my chest was pushed up against Mark. 
There were people on the left of me, the right of me, behind me, and we were just stuck. So I, I managed to just grab Mark's backpack and sort of forced us and yanked us to the side just so we had a little breathing space. Robert, our correspondent, then manages to join us. And before we know it, the crowd have broken down the doors and are running across the terrace into the capital. That, that's the sort of story of how we got inside anyway. And at that point, there was presumably, you know, you saw people going in and you wouldn't hesitate to go in. It was just follow the crowd, right? This is a, an incredible moment. As a viewer watching on, it felt like a real moment in history. And I think people texting each other back in London, you know, just saying, have you seen what's going on at the Capitol? So from your perspective, it was a case of, well, we're going in. I don't think we even thought about it like that. As you said, we just followed them. We all knew in our own minds that this was unlike any situation uh, ever experienced in DC or, you know, not for hundreds of years, as I said. We followed the story. We followed the crowd inside. Uh, Robert managed to keep his cool and do a couple of pieces to camera. And we just followed the crowd. And at that point, when Robert's doing the pieces to camera, again, were you starting to feel more exposed? That At that point, you're in the kind of eye of the storm and you were becoming obviously a news crew and obviously a news crew with with an English accent. Exactly. You're right. It did make us more of a target and we got pushed a little, but... At this stage, we were on the terrace of the Senate, not actually inside the building yet. It was actually once inside the Capitol that we did get a lot more attention and unwanted attention. However, being British in this instance helps. Remember, these right-wing rioters despise the fake news, as it's called. And we're talking about CNN, ABC, NBC. So we say to them look, we're from the British press. We're just here to listen to you. We want to know why you're here and why you're doing this. And it really helped diffuse the situation. It, it really did, which is a, a sad state of affairs for you know, American news and American journalism. It really is. However, on this occasion, in quite a dangerous situation, at one stage, there are a circle of men in camouflage all wielding these heavy wooden sticks sort of encircled us. All three of us had to sort of talk our way out of it, but we were we were fine, and actually, it, it ended quite quickly. I've said before that the anger that day was really not directed at us; it was directed, you know, at those in power. Did you feel at that point, presumably, when you're surrounded by those guys, you presumably felt pretty frightened at that point, or were you able to diffuse it as you've just explained quite quickly? I think the adrenaline, truthfully means that you're not frightened because I don't think any of us have looked back now and said we felt frightened. It perhaps was frightening, but maybe we weren't frightened. You just act on the situation. We managed to diffuse it. Also, it's not the first time as a TV news crew reporting in the States that we have been not assaulted because that's absolutely the wrong word, but questioned sort of forcibly, let's put it that way, you know. We've used this line before. We've spoken to people before. We talked our way out of it. So no, I, I wouldn't say we were frightened. But looking back, it was, I guess, a little dicey. And then from that point, I mean, how far inside did you follow the crowd? How far inside the uh, capital? Oh, I mean, all the way. We we followed them all the way to the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi's office, and saw them ripping down her name placard and stamping on it 
on the floor. You know, we, we were with them throughout. I, I would like to say we were not there when Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed, and I am glad about that. We were we were at the heart of the the storm in the Senate, that's for sure. As a viewer, I was watching it live and thinking, you know, once night falls, this is going to get even worse. You know, this is going to really get out of hand. Was it at that point when the military started to get involved and then everybody sort of seemingly melted away? Or how did it then progress from you being outside Nancy Pelosi's office? From there, I mean, we stayed with the crowd. The The National Guard weren't mobilised for quite some time. I think we were inside. We were inside for over an hour, I believe, uh, well over an hour. And the crowd were roaming freely. There were a few police completely overwhelmed. And th- there's no chance that 10 police officers can hold back a furious armed mob of hundreds. The police were just letting them pass, letting them do what they wanted, because in terms of the actual officers on the ground, it's not their fault they were underprepared and overwhelmed, you know, and there's no way that 10 officers are going to hold back, as I said, that angry crowd. They they would have been killed. In retrospect, you know, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, the security setup, because you were there, you had the sense that things were going to get a little bit nasty. You would have thought that the protection for the US Capitol building would have been more substantial than what we've seen, which is a few barriers and a handful of police is what it looked like. That's exactly it. I mean, I I do wonder with previous marches and previous rallies in the Capitol, the violence has been in the evening, as we were also anticipating. Let's not forget that an attack on the Capitol, as I've said, is unprecedented. It's not happened for over 200 years. So perhaps it's not that's surprising the capital wasn't more protected. However, it does raise really serious questions about not only the policing, but how the different agencies work together. The fact that the National Guard were not mobilised by the president at all, and it's got the vice president to mobilise them is quite astounding. It, it was only when the National Guard came into the Senate that we were, well, one pushed to the ground and then just forced with the rest of the rioters out into the corridors. And then eventually we called it and we left. From that point, you returned to the Bureau and started editing and and sending your report back. Yeah, so Robert, our correspondent, had left a little earlier because we knew this was huge and he ran back to the Bureau and started editing feverishly with Adam Blair, our magnificent editor. While Mark and I stayed to try to gather more, we then looked at the time and realised that what what the other footage that we got was excellent. And then if we also legged it, we could make it back into the Bureau and hopefully that footage could also get into Robert's bulletin. And how long did it take you to edit that piece to get it back from when, when Robert started working on it until the, uh, the time that you sent it back? Truthfully, I'm not quite sure. Time on that day, I, I've been trying to write out a timeline has just sort of skewed. It feels like it was all five minutes, but also about 500 hours. It wasn't very long. I know that it was a really, really quick turnaround. And Adam did a fantastic job. As I say, so it's a remarkable report. And we'll feature it on telecast on the description. Sophie, thank you so much for spending time with us. Actually, one more question. How does it feel now in Washington, D.C.? You say you're, you're obviously 
still run off your feet, incredibly busy. What's the sense around uh, the city now? I wouldn't say it's one of fear, but there's been a curfew enacted from today, which is days ahead of when it was meant to be for the inauguration. The security is everywhere. If you go down to the capital now, it's a bit like a ghost town apart from the army, the National Guard, the police. You only see security. You don't see anyone else. I wouldn't quite say it feels like something's about to happen because I do think following on from what happened last week, they'll have heightened policing by, you know, a thousand times. It just feels quite quite strange. You know, it was this building once again was the scene of something incredibly historical but this time it's 2021 you know how did this happen it was remarkable and i think a day that tv news as well really sort of reaffirmed itself as as an you know an incredibly important channel for taking that story around the world rather than you know social media obviously we saw lots of clips on on social media and and we know what's happened with social media in terms of Donald Trump and various others in the in the wake of this. Again, remarkable report. Congratulations, Sophie, to you and all of the team. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll keep tuning in and, and watching your reports as the Biden inauguration happens over the next few days. Brilliant. Thanks very much. It was great to talk to you. So, Maria, welcome to Telecast. Feliz Año Nuevo. Thank you very much, Justin. So you're Senior Research Director of Media and Entertainment at Omdia Research. So your services must be very much in demand at the moment as businesses try and make sense of this lockdown and try and strategize. You are totally right, Justin. Uh, I work at Omdia. Uh, Omdia is the merger of IHS Market Technology and Obum. And this year, last year, 2020, has been a very uh, exciting year in the sense of the pandemic, people on lockdown. So in terms of media, people watch more TV than ever. Some streaming services did really well, but other services did really bad or they were very challenging, like sports events and others. So we did a lot of work, a lot of consultancy, trying to help our media clients navigate through all the uncertainty due to the pandemic, and because we didn't know when the lockdown was going to come to an end. Still don't. So yes, uh, Exactly. We are still yeah. there. We know 2020 was a great year to be in the online video streaming business. So what can we expect for 2021? That's a very great question, because yes, in terms of online services, 2020 has seen SBOT growth at one of the fastest rates on record. In fact, this year, 2020, so more subscribers added to the online video streaming than at any other point in history. Across all the services we cover at Omdia, we saw in 2020 more than 226 million pay additions to the streaming world. So in 2020, for first time, there are now more subscribers to online video streaming services than pay TV. In fact, we have now more than 1 billion subscribers to online services. And one-third of those are with Netflix, Amazon, and Disney. These are the three top players in the pay online streaming world. But yes, it has been a fantastic year for online video streaming. 
But as all industries and economies tend to move between waves of growth and pools of stagnation, SBOT is not an exception. 2020 was a year for the records, great growth, but we think 2021 will be a year of industry-wide cooling, especially once everyone has been vaccinated, everyone can go out. So the first half of the year, we'll still see many people uh, in lockdown in many countries, but in the second half of the year, when people are out, when people can spend money in other activities, we think there will be a slowdown in growth in online streaming. So just to give you some numbers, in 2020, Netflix, Apple TV, they got more than 30 million additions. Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, another top two winners. But in 2021, all these services, all of them, Netflix, Apple, Disney, Amazon, are expected to see significant declines in net additions. So the growth in 2021 will be one of the smallest in the last 10 years. I want to mention in particular Apple. Apple TV Plus had a great year, but it was due a lot to the free trials. Everyone who bought a new device got a one-year trial to the service. What will happen now in 2021 when those trials will come to an end? We are expecting big churn. We're expecting a decline in the number of subscribers to Apple TV+. Plus. Not only because the free trials will come to an end, but also due to the small library of content available in Apple TV. Also, as of the pandemic, many production, many shows were put on hold. There is another thing what happened with SBOT. In order to grow, they are always using a healthy pipeline of potential new subscribers. But during 2020, we saw that pipeline exhausted. New subscribers have been converted at astonishing rates and the pool of subscribers in potential have been vastly reduced. Not only does this impact growth, but also strategy. So what can these companies do to grow in 2021? In order to grow, especially when we face so much competition, services such as Amazon and Netflix must refill the pot and gain access to new sources of subscriptions. This being, being more open to integrated deals with consumer gatekeepers, such as pay TV providers, telcos. These deals will include further integrated libraries and even the bundling of SPOT services. So for us at Omdia, we strongly believe 2021 will be the year of partnerships. 2020 was the booming from the SBOT industry, but 2021 will be a year of humility. For the first time, big SBOT players must rely on former rivals for their own success. So 2021, partnerships is my key word. Partnerships, okay. Talking about Apple TV, I'm absolutely one of those consumers. I had a, a new iPhone a few months ago and and actually, they extended the trial, I remember. I think it was initially three or six months, and they extended it to a year. Correct. Everybody that's bought those iPhones or iPads, they're going to have their free trials expiring. And, I mean, I can't see the value on subscribing to that. You know, I'm going to be one of the consumers that, that they're going to lose. It's certainly going to be an interesting time, particularly with all these new players. 
I gather you've got some exclusive Omdia research data that you can share with our listeners. Yes, Justin, because at the end of last year, we did a consumer survey and we asked uh, customers around the world, what were the most popular services? What do they watch during 2020? Uh, the numbers were released a couple of weeks ago. We haven't published the report yet, but I will be happy to share with you and with your uh, audience these figures. So in the UK, when we ask people, what have you been uh, watching on a monthly basis? The number one service has been YouTube. And they have been watching it uh, on the big screen. So YouTube has been the most popular service in the UK. Also, in I would say across the whole Western Europe, in France and Germany as well, people have put YouTube as the service they most uh, watch on the big screen in their living room. That's interesting, right? Because you don't really think about YouTube, but more and more connected TVs, you're able to access the app at the bottom of your screen. And Correct. In fact, free services were on the rise as well in 2020. So going back to the UK, I will tell you what are the top four services. Number one, YouTube. Number two, BBC iPlayer. Number three, Netflix. Number four, Prime Video. In terms of uh, pay online streaming services, Disney Plus that was launched uh, in Q1 last year became the third most popular pay online video streaming services. So Disney Plus arrived at the right time in the UK when kids were at home and very quickly Disney became the third favorite pay spot in the UK. Also, it's interesting, Justin, this is uh, overall the UK, but when we look at different segments, we saw that people above 45, the service they watched the most was not YouTube, it was not Netflix, it was BBC. Uh, people above 45, they chose BBC as the most popular service during 2020. When we look at people between 18 to 34, then it changed. It was YouTube and it was Netflix. So very different, uh, different segments in the UK of what was the most popular service. Very different, above 45, very different, below 34-year-old. Also, uh, it's important to say that it was not only a rise in paid subscriptions, consumers are also increasingly turning to free ABOT services. Not only in terms of the number of services people take at home, in terms of the number of hours and minutes a day where people are watching that content. This we saw it already in 2019, so it was not just because of the pandemic, but we see an increase in ABOT across all the countries around the world. And when we look at number of services, ABOT and SBOT in the UK, people have now more than five services per home. In the US, this goes even to 10. So the appetite for watching, consuming video, pay and free is on the rise, is still increasing, and we still think it will be on the rise this year 2021. So thanks very much, Maria. That's really fascinating stuff. We'll feature all of the images that you've kindly shared with us and the data on the Telecast website and also on the Telecast Plus newsletter that comes out every Friday. Everyone can go and uh, have a look at those graphics. Really interesting stuff. So Nappy Miami is taking place virtually, of course, next week. And many of us would usually be jetting off around about now to the sun for the event. But 
Sadly not in 2021. Now, the market is focused on LATAM and US syndication and Spanish content obviously features very heavily here, but it's not a territory that we've discussed in any detail on telecast so far. Can you give us a little indication of the industry, what the industry means on a global scale, and give us a bit of a run through of the landscape of uh, the Spanish TV market? Sure, Justin. So, yes, uh, I was one of those people going every January to sunny Napi, Miami. So I got it that instead of Miami, I have to be in London. As beautiful as London is, it was always great to start the year in Miami. And yes, it was the paradise of all Spanish speakers because in Napi, Miami, you could have find people from all the Spanish countries in the world, Colombia, Costa Rica. It was a fantastic place. I am Spanish myself, as probably everyone listening today has noticed. So, yes, I'm very pleased to tell you how popular, how fantastic the Spanish content is now and how important it is, not only in Spanish-speaking countries, also in the U.S. Why in the U.S.? The U.S. is one of the biggest markets in the world in terms of entertainment. The value is around $190 billion in 2020. And 19% of the population in the U.S., they're Hispanic people. So 61 million people in the U.S. are Hispanic. So for these people, Spanish content is really important. Why? Despite uh, we understand the English, we speak English, but when, as a quote from Nelson Mandela says, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. And I think this is very true with the entertainment, with content, with series, with drama. If it's in your local language, it is of high value. In the past, when people heard about Spanish content, they associated it with telenovelas. But it has been a big change over the last years. And I will mention one series, and I will mention one online streaming service, La Casa de Papel and Netflix. Why? Before La Casa de Papel, as I said, people thought Spanish content was just telenovelas. And with La Casa de Papel, that it was a Spanish series from Spain, Atres Media, Antena 3, public service broadcaster, it was not very popular in Spain. I don't know if it's because it had lots of adverts, if because it didn't work very well in Spain. As soon as they sold the series to Netflix, they tried with other companies, but nobody was interested, thinking it's too Spanish, it will not sell well, it will not travel around the world, we are not interested. But Netflix saw the value and they thought, we like it, we want to show this to the rest of the world. It became a massive hit. It became a massive hit and it was the beginning of a new era for Spanish content. Not only Spanish content from Spain, but from all the Spanish countries around the world. So let me go back to the US and the streaming services. I would have to tell you that Spanish language TV is still relatively underrepresented on the major US over-the-top video services. Netflix and Hulu offer the highest volume of titles. In fact, of all the titles available in Netflix, 11% are now in Spanish. Why? Why they are doing this? 
while all other providers like Amazon only have less than 1% in Spanish. They realize there is an appetite, huge appetite for this content. All these 1961 million of people living in the US, Spanish speakers, wanted that content. In fact, we did a very interesting analysis last year across Netflix and Amazon for that Hispanic population in the US. And there was a big churn from Amazon to Netflix. And one of the reasons they gave was the lack of Spanish content. So it's not a coincidence that Netflix decided to invest in this type of content. And when we speak about 11% of Netflix catalog being Spanish, where is this Spanish content from? The number one country is Colombia. Colombia was the largest supplier of Spanish language content for US services. 25% of that Spanish catalog is from Colombia, 18% from Mexico, and 16% from Spain. And now we have lots of titles available. La Casa de Papel, Farinha, Roma, Elite, lots of big hits that they will probably be mentioned next week at Napi Miami. And when we go into other uh, services, we said Hulu as well is investing a lot in Spanish content. So is Tubi and Pluto TV. But there is still other countries, other services that we think will start investing from 2021, like, for example, Amazon. So I have to say, for Spanish content, Netflix has been a big promoter of our content around the world. It has given opportunity to many producers of Spanish content to be known around the world. Hence, how many partnerships, we started the conversation today talking about partnerships, I will see even more happening in the next years between big players like Netflix, like Amazon, and local Spanish producers of Spanish content around the world. Just a, amazing the way that streaming service can really reinvigorate a whole industry in Spain. And presumably, we'll, we'll also see a lot more exports coming through linear TV and being distributed internationally as well as a result. Of course, this will be popularity not only in export, also in linear TV. And not only in Spanish language. We saw also Apple TV last year with Tehran and other series uh, from Israel being also very popular. So I think there is a boom from all local content in different languages when before it was mainly English content and now people are open to local content in their own local original language, which is really, really important. It makes an awful lot of sense. Congratulations to, to Netflix for uh, identifying an underserved population. And as you say, 61 million people in the US. I mean, that's that's about the same as the UK population as, as a whole. So it's actually a whole new territory within a territory, if you like. Correct. Correct. And, and these are the Hispanic. And of course, there are more people in the US that are Spanish speakers. And of course, the whole Latin America and many other people around the world. Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really enjoy chatting to you. And enjoy Nappy Miami virtually. <laughs> We'll hopefully see you in person in Miami in uh, 2022. I'm uh, getting ready to go there already. I hope so, Justin. So thank you very much. And if you need me, if anyone in the audience has questions, I will be happy to answer them. So thank you very much for inviting me today. 
Page, welcome to Telecast. As contributing editor to Broadcast and Cable and Multi-Channel News, you've been covering the US TV market closely for a number of years. And we've been talking about Nappy Miami, which as well as being a LATAM content market, is also known as a, a syndication market. Now, to be honest, I've never really fully understood the US TV syndication business model. And I wondered if you could take us through the syndication landscape, starting with how and why it developed and who makes the money and how do they make the money? Well, Nappy, first of all, originated as a syndication television market. And I forget the year, but it was many, many years ago. So the way that television works in the US, this will be hard to explain concisely, but there are some 211 television markets across the country. Each of those markets has multiple television stations, depending on how much population there is to serve. So like in New York City, there's probably, I don't know, 20 television stations. Then those television stations operated over the public airwaves. And so that's why you have free over there television in the US. Syndication started off as all of those TV stations were owned by different people, different maybe groups, but a lot of times individually. And then you had hundreds of producers that were producing shows that they hoped to put on TV stations. So Nappy started as a big market where the buyers and sellers got together and bought shows. Over the years, all of that's consolidated. So now you have very many less owners of television stations. You still have some independents, family-owned, et cetera. You also have very large groups like Nexstar, Sinclair, et cetera. And then the producers have also consolidated, many of which are now owned by companies like Disney, Warner Media, NBC Universal. You may have heard of them. So then you also have some smaller producers. So as a result, the market has gotten a lot more streamlined. And another way to say that is maybe less dynamic in that there are fewer buyers, there are fewer sellers. So there tends to be less programming produced. And it, it tends to be produced as opposed to here's a show stations, maybe buy it. Now it will be like, here's Kelly Clarkson. We're going to launch on the NBC owned stations in top markets and then distribute it to the rest of the country. And a lot of times NBC affiliates will pick it up. So now, as you know, as everybody knows, linear TV has its ratings power has diminished as fragmentation and streaming has evolved. When you do, let's take Kelly Clarkson. It's a good example. So Kelly Clarkson launches two years ago. Relatively speaking, it's doing pretty well. If you put it in context of past television shows, it's, you know, it's rating as a 1.0 in household, which essentially is 1% of the viewing audience at that time, which isn't very much, but compared to everything else, it's fine. But the problem is when your rating is that and you're selling to advertisers based on your rating, you're only making so much money. So are you making enough money to A, cover the cost of the show and B, cover the costs and then make some money back? So that's the conundrum right now. So going back to Nappy, so Nappy, because it started as this, still is sort of this, but a lot of times at Nappy, this business has kind of already been done or it's already in place. So I would actually say that Nappy, Nappy would like to be considered like the kickoff of the global television market. So it'd be like Nappy and then MIP and MIPCOM. You've also got a Nappy in Budapest. So that's how they view it. Now, whether or not that's actually true, that's a different conversation. But 
that's sort of where Nappy sits in this whole area. You mentioned streamers, and obviously streamers have been a huge beneficiary of the pandemic and everything that's gone on over the last year or so. So just looking at some research from eMarketer, the cable, satellite, and telecom TV industry in the US is on track to lose the most subscribers ever. And in 2020, over 6 million US households were forecast to cut the cord with pay TV. And according to YouGov, uh, their recent research was forecasting 27% of US households will cut the cord in 2021. Now, we've seen the streamers, as I say, being the big beneficiaries, but it looks now like pay TV being the biggest losers. Does that mean the end is nigh for the syndication business? These two things are not necessarily connected. And to some extent, cutting of pay TV is a is kind of a good thing for over there broadcasters. But it's, you know, this can show up in a lot of different scenarios. But let's say that you're in the US and you're a subscriber to Comcast. Then you get all your local over there TV stations on your cable system and you also get your cable networks and now you get apps, right? So you can get Netflix and Amazon and whatever else via your set-top box. Okay. So if you cut the cord and you don't have Comcast anymore or DirecTV or whatever it is your pay service provider, you perhaps put up an antenna on your roof. You get your local over there providers, plus they now have these additional services called Diginets that run on different parts of the frequency. And you then might get a streamer. You might also get Netflix. And that would be your television. If that's the case, you have a greater tendency to probably watch over there television than you would if you had cable, because you just have less options. So to some extent, like, so that stat could potentially work in the over there broadcaster's favor, because it means people are less reliant on pay television and the apps, you know, or Netflix, all of that, that's a different thing, but that also, that contributes to just overall fragmentation of the marketplace. I'm going to throw in one other thing here, which is a little bit off what you asked, but I'm just, I'm just finishing up a story on this, but you know, now the syndicators, so the people that produce things like the Kelly Clarkson show or Wendy Williams or even Ellen, they're really looking at, what are the streaming options for these shows and what are other digital extensions that we can create that can earn revenue? Even though syndication was initially created for producers to serve broadcast stations, syndication in the broader definition just means taking a piece of something and selling it on to lots of distribution channels. So that's what syndicators are looking at doing now. How can we take one piece of content and sell it across as many platforms as possible to accrue as many revenue streams as possible? Well, that's interesting. It's almost like the way that digital producers are looking to monetize content as well. It's 100% the same thing. So it's really just a question of platform. At this point, like, let's, Ellen is another good example. You probably heard there was, there's been some behind the scenes drama at that show. But as a brand, if you separate it from that, as a brand, Ellen has a show. She has Ellen Tube. She has a huge YouTube presence. She has primetime presence with her shows like Game of Games. And she has all these like digital games and stuff she does. So all of that together is very lucrative. And so Ellen as a brand distributed across all those platforms is actually an incredible revenue driver. Those local DigiNets, are those local? Is that just uh, local? They're not local. 
No. So again, this is a little complicated, but with the broadcast spectrum has six megahertz. Back in the day when the FCC said, here's, we're going to give you, we're going to take your spectrum and take it from analog to digital. The broadcaster said, okay, six megahertz. I need one megahertz to do high definition television. Now I've still got five megahertz. So instead of taking all that spectrum and just giving it over to high definition, they've divided it into different channels. Not in all cases, but in a lot. So what happened then is companies created these little networks called DigiNets, and they mostly run like library content, like old Westerns or uh, Little House on the Prairie or just stuff like that that's not very expensive. And they populate these little networks with it. And then the stations run them. It's kind of no cost to anybody. And they sell a little advertising. And they make a little money. But those are sort of evolving into more. So you're seeing more, like, for example, there's one in the US called Bounce, which is targeted at African Americans. But people are putting, like, Wendy Williams runs on Bounce, for example. So they're not, they don't have a local, like, there's not really local news on them. I think maybe on some, a couple of them there are, but they're not really locally focused. But they do run on the spectrum of local broadcast stations. Looking at advertising, I mean, obviously advertising is key to this business model as well. And we've seen right around the world advertising falling off a, a cliff, really, in the first six months of the pandemic. Maybe it's coming back in, in certain territories as well. I mean, is that going to have a lasting effect on the syndication market? Well, you may have heard in the US, we just had an election. And in the US, political advertising is enormous. So even though, yes, the first, I think, few months of the pandemic were rough on stations, especially for things like your local advertisers, like let's say your local hardware store was advertising. Well, nobody was going to the local hardware store, so they didn't want to advertise. So that part was difficult. But then political started coming into play. And I mean, it was billions of dollars. So it, and the way it works is, let's just say you're Biden and you're trying to swing Georgia, you're going to really pump a lot of money into Georgia. So the stations in those markets did really well. Now the question is for 2021, because you don't have political, what's that going to look like? Although I would also say in the US, as you see, we're not doing a very good job of managing the pandemic. And that's partly because they don't want to shut down the economy. So I think advertising is stabilizing. But you said that the political advertising of the US election, now that's over and done with, we hope. But presumably, without that political advertising revenue, then, you know, things are going to be quite laid bare, aren't they? Maybe in sort of come March, April time, you're really going to see the impact of, of, uh, of you know, how, how many advertising dollars there are in the marketplace. There's two points I would make here. Point one is, in May, we typically have what's called the upfronts, which is when Networks show their wares to advertisers and advertisers basically buy their advertising ahead of time. They secure their advertising inventory ahead of time. And that allows them to get a discount on it, essentially. Now, last year, that didn't really happen. They did it virtually, but normally everybody gathers in New York and sees everything. So that certainly affects the advertising market. So what happens this year is unclear. The other part of it is with syndication, because it's largely what you call day and date. So it happens every day. So like, let's take like live with Kelly and Ryan. So you know that that show is going to air Monday through Friday. It's going to be an originals, let's say 48 weeks a year. And it typically does 
to household rating. So you pretty much know that. And so when you take that to the advertising market, you can sell that stability. Because of that, that's an advantage for syndication. So and it's also kind of a value play. So let's say like you wanted to buy Fox's new primetime schedule. You really have no idea what that's going to do. But with syndication, you absolutely know what you're going to do. You know what your money is getting you. You know what audiences it's reaching. You know the frequency. You know the reach. We could probably have a whole show dedicated to to getting into the real detail of all of these different areas. But Paige, thank you for joining us on Telecast. Really enjoyed having you on the show. What's your predictions for US TV in 2021? What do you think are going to be the main developments to watch? I am leery of predictions. I will say that I am very interested in the HBO Max Thing where they're bringing their first-run movies to the streaming service and releasing them in tandem uh, with theatrical release. This is not a syndication thing, but my argument about that has been if you sign up 1 million new subscribers at $15 a month because they launched Wonder Woman. So that's $15 million a month. And then let's say that you keep 30% of them for five years at $15 million a month. I think if you add it up, and I can't do it on the fly, but it's something like $300 million. So you've certainly made back the money for that movie. Now they're dropping 17 movies this year, something like that, to consider what kind of subscribers they might attract because they can't go to the movies. So in my mind, even though that was a big kerfuffle here, you know, like what will happen to the theaters, I actually think it makes all the sense in the world. But And the other thing someone had said to me is because you have that kind of money in the mix and it's direct consumer and you're sort of skipping the theater middleman, this creators and the talent potentially can make a lot more money. So I think that whole situation is yeah. very interesting. Yeah, well, it's really changing the whole model, isn't it? If the talent's, you know, going to make even more money potentially and there's more cost stripped out, then, yeah, then it makes sense. Uh, I think a lot of people that we've spoken to on the show so far have indicated that the genie's out of the bottle, you know. This is not going back to how it was pre-pandemic in terms of theatrical. Paige, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, All the best for 2021, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. So for the first time in 2021, it's time to welcome back to the show our well-being expert, Tracy Forsyth. Happy New Year, Tracy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Happy New Year to you, Justin. How are you? I'm okay. I think as well as can be expected, I think, is probably the the response that a lot of people are giving to each other right now, because obviously we've got post-Christmas blues, cold dark nights, credit card bills are starting to arrive after Christmas. Not to mention all those New Year's resolutions that have all were already been cast aside. I mean, in fact, that's one thing I was going to say to you, Justin, that this year for New Year's resolutions, I think we only need one. And that is to be kind to ourselves. Because normally at this time of year, we're like, okay, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to learn to play the guitar, et cetera, et cetera, which are all admirable things. But I think that one above anything else this year, be kind to yourself, is one that I would really recommend. Give yourself a bit of a break, right? Don't beat yourself up. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I, like often people find it really, really hard to be kind to themselves. And we've talked about 
this a little bit before, but so if you're the type of person that finds it really, really hard to be kind to yourself, then, you know, one of my things is not only speak to friends, you know, who are kind to you, but also to imagine you are your own best friend. And with your internal dialogue, imagine that you were speaking to your best friend, but you're speaking to yourself. So what would you advise your best friend? What kind of words of encouragement would you give your best friend? What kind of comfort would you give your best friend? And with all of that, give it to yourself. Yeah. This time of year, first of all, we know this is a PR construct, right? But the, but Blue Monday, there's this, uh, this day, Blue Monday, Monday, the 18th of January next week, is dubbed the most miserable day of the year because of all those things I mentioned earlier on. We should give ourselves a break and we should, as you say, probably share how we're feeling. This COVID thing is obviously it's a nightmare and it feels like it's getting worse at the moment because we're subject to all these numbers that we see on the news every day. It's about sharing how we're feeling, isn't it? Rather than because we're obviously all cooped up at home. It's two things, really. It's it's sort of acknowledge what's going on with yourself. Like, you know what? It's, It's rubbish at the moment for many, many people. And it's rubbish in many, many different ways. You're not alone. And there are many people feeling desperate and desperately anxious and worried. And the the key thing is there is just to not to suffer in silence, is to reach out to other people. I know everybody's got their own problems, but often that whole thing about a problem shared is a problem halved is true. Just getting it off your chest, speaking it out loud, talking about your worries and anxieties, it's right that you're feeling that way and deserve to be comforted for that. So definitely sharing it by speaking to a friend, etc. And and also being there for a friend, I think, can help. You know, I found that some of the people who are the strongest people in my life are also suffering. And so to be on the receiving end of their worries and woes is 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 a comfort to me, you know, that I can be there to help. Yeah. I think the other thing is about, you know, acknowledging Blue Monday and acknowledging feeling blue. It's like, don't try and pretend that you can just carry on as normal. You know, I think for people working at home, then, you know, maybe just try and have a duvet day, even if you're working from your duvet, you know, have a hot chocolate, have something, you know, whatever, just these small comforts, get cozy, make sure you're nice and warm, you know, have a nice bath if that makes you feel good. It's that when you're feeling blue, you know, just comfort yourself. Just eat like nourishing food. Eat the kind of comfort food that you had when you were as a child, even if it comes out of a can or, or whatever. This is the time really to to cozy up and nestle in. And if you feel like working on your laptop from the duvet, um, or have a have a, a a chick flick or or whatever a good old western or whatever it might be on in the background, then do it. Indulge yourself. That just reminds me that uh, Sex in the City has been rebooted. Maybe people should go back and uh, and rewatch the whole series of uh, number of seasons that were produced of that. But I think one thing that's helped me actually is being able to reconnect with a lot of old friends via uh, Zoom on a weekend and we we tend to do that on a weekly basis now so a lot of old friends like from school and from the from the city they used to live in you know that I haven't actually I speak to them now more than I ever did before COVID because everybody's checking on on each other and uh, and just having a chat really you know and uh, with a bottle of wine on the on the zoom and and you know I find that's really uh, 
a really positive thing. Justin, I think those 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 friends that have known you for a very long time, like school friends or whatever, you know, try and hook up with those friends that just you have those belly laughs with, you know, where actually or you that you can just hang out with, you know, that you don't have to have an agenda to be with, you know, that you just enjoy being with your being with each other's company, where you can just chat, 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 chat. And I think that's absolutely right, is schedule those chats or schedule those I don't know, there's walking calls, you know, if you're, go- if you're going to go out for a walk and you can call a friend and just, just shoot the breeze, as they say. All of that is so life enhancing, isn't it? Get it off your chest, let them get it off your chest, just get it off your chest and, and just take comfort and give comfort. Exactly. So if we hear anything about Blue Monday, you read it in the press, ignore it. It's a, it's a PR construct. It's an it's absolute load of rubbish. And remember, the days are getting two minutes longer every single day. That's the other thing, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because also then, you know, with the days, it's true that with the short days, it means by the time you finish work, you can't really go out for a walk because it's dark. So um, that just to remind people to really try, try, try and get out in the middle of the day or first thing in the morning when when the sun is is out, hopefully. I mean, it's a cloudy day today, but just get out and find the light, find the light. Wise words. Tracy, thank you so much. It's great to have you back on the show this year and looking forward to chatting more next week. You're welcome. Take care. Well, that's it for another week's show. Thanks, as always, for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and share Telecast with friends and colleagues. And don't forget to sign up for our new free newsletter called Telecast Plus. We aim to make it the most useful thing coming into your inbox every Friday. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, jobs news, execs available for hire, Tracy's wellbeing tip of the week, and exclusive features, insight, and opinion. And it's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in Lockdown 3 in London. Next week's show is a Real Screen Summit special, featuring guests including Spring Films' Andre Singer, OBE, Frantic Films' CEO Jamie Brown, Real Screen's Barry Walsh, and others as we discuss the outlook for the unscripted sector in 2021. Until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.